Hi, and welcome to PodCash, the Portable CPD in Best Practice podcast from Cash. My name's Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing network of current and future professionals in care, health, and education. You can join us for free at www.cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists and experts, e-learning, you can get access to a discount and benefits scheme, and lots of support with career development and your future growth. In today's episode, we're going to learn all about brain growth and development with a nutritional therapist, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hello, I'm Louise Mathieu, nutritional therapist with The Health Cook, and I'm here to do this video today on the nutritional aspects of building a brain. Um, so what really goes into building a brain? And in particular, of course, um, as a nutritional therapist, I'm going to be looking at the nutrients involved in brain development. And brain development is a really big subject, um, so we will be looking at the, the nutritional considerations in terms of what specific nutrients, but also what happens in the very beginning, um, so in terms of prenatal, but even before prenatal nutrition, um, and then what happens sort of in terms of going forward, so from pregnancy to a baby and the rapid you know phase of development that children's brains have as babies but then through learning through an academic you know school university etc and the influence that nutrition has throughout that whole time whilst that brain is still growing which it will continue to do until around the age of 21 25 even a bit later in terms of becoming a proper full-grown adult-sized brain that then stops growing and then we need to go into the sort of maintenance phase of how we stop forgetting everything. So it's a really big subject in terms of the, the nutritional link with our brain development. And how do we actually build a brain? Um, so what goes into our brains from a biological perspective? Um, a lot of fat. <laughs> so 40% fat makes up our brain. Um, and that's why when we talk about fats, we often talk about essential fatty acids or EFAs. And they are really essential at this point in time for a building a brain, for a child's development. The frontal lobe um, in particular should be rich in, in essential fatty acids and that's, that's very much involved in problem solving, concentration and focus, etc. So when you consider that a baby, a toddler, a child has to learn everything, um, it's really frustrating and it can be really limiting when they are deficient because they're just not grasping things way that they should and so nutrition really does have a big influence in, in not only the biology building a body and, and nurturing that small body but also in the day-to-day -day functioning of a child in terms of what we expect of them in the world we live in um, and how well they can actually cope with that so in terms of the, the brain 40% fat over 60% water approximately and the four fats in particular that make up that the, the four essential fats and I'm not going to read their full names because it will take me a considerable amount of time to read their full names they are always known by their abbreviations AA, DHA, EPA and DGLA and we will cover more of them a little bit later on um, and they are really common in terms of food sources so don't think they're really obscure you know things that you have to dash off to a health food job and find some obscure essential fatty acids because they are they are in foods that we do eat and I will cover what the top brain foods are as far as I'm concerned a little bit later on. So let's go to the very beginning and look at what happens um, in terms of building that baby's brain from conception. So 
when a baby is actually in the womb, in the womb, so when a when a lady is actually pregnant, obviously that baby starts to build its nutrients from its mother, and it it steals, you know, it steals from the mother. Um, but fifty percent of the nutrients that that go into that baby, fifty percent of that actually goes to building the brain. So half of what the baby gets goes towards its brain. Um, so obviously there's a disproportionate amount of growth going on within the brain um, from the nutrients that the baby gets. Obviously, there's so much going on in terms of our central computer, if you like. So much going on there that then fuels what happens everywhere else in the body. So from the very beginning, 50% of the nutrients are going up here, while the other 50 are shared out amongst the rest of the body. So it is really important that the mother has a really good diet. I know that's a separate subject in terms of prenatal nutrition, and it's a really big and really important subject, and it is certainly not just eating for two. There's so much more that goes into the biology of a prenatal diet in terms of shaping that, that future health of the baby. But it's really important for mums to make sure that she has those essential fatty acids in her diet in particular, because 50% of the nutrients going to the baby are feeding the growing baby's brain. And so if the baby isn't getting everything it needs in terms of the nutrients that are passed on, it will then steal from its mother what it needs. So it will just go and take what it needs. And that can often leave mum feeling a bit depleted. Um, often it's referred to as baby brain. If you're pregnant and you can't remember things, you know, it's often, oh, it's baby brain. But baby brain could be actually, you're now deficient in the sort of nutrients that feel memory and concentration because your baby's stealing them from you. Uh, so it could be that actually you just need a few more and then you've both got more than enough because actually the baby's very good at looking after itself and it's very good at taking what it needs and it doesn't care that that leaves you feeling confused and not able to remember why you walked into a room because it's building its own brain at that point. So this is a really big, there's one slide, there's a really big subject, this um, header, epigenome and early nutrition. And so there's, there's so much involved in the, the one word there, epigenome, and we don't have time to go into that all here because it's a whole standalone of the subject. But it's basically looking at what nutritional and lifestyle traits we pass on. And this actually starts to occur pre-pregnancy, so pre-conception. So that is equally important to men and women because obviously 50% from each, you know, male and female goes into the, the unborn child. So pre-conception, the diet of mother and father is equally as important because 50% of what they pass on includes epigenetic information. And this isn't DNA, which is set in stone. The epigenetic information are the heritable traits that are influenced by the way we live our lives. So our diet is one massive element when it comes to that and our, our lifestyle. So how active are we? How stressed are we? How much exposure to toxins have we have, etc. Heritable information, the way we live our life, that heritable epigenetic information is passed on through inherited traits. So it's really important if you're planning a family or thinking about it, not just to think at the time of, you know, right, we're pregnant now, let's start to look at, at nutrition, but pre that stage, when you're having the conversations, you know, around trying for a family at that point, look at diet and lifestyle because the thing with epigenetic information is the way we live our lives, the things that are heritable, we can influence and change those, unlike our DNA, which we can't change is set in stone. So if you are a smoker, a heavy drinker, and have a diet full of processed foods, 
all of that is negative, if you like, um, epigenetic information. It's not the healthiest traits that we can be passing on. But it's, I say it's easy to change, obviously it isn't that easy to change, but it's easy to make certain changes and tweaks to change the information that you pass on. And it's really important that we do look at changing the information that we pass on so that we're not sort of passing on heritable traits that are starting the patterns of unhealthy feeding behaviours because we can literally pass on a bad diet. And food is more than biology. So yes, food fuels us and does all the biological things, but it also is very closely linked to your emotional state. So food habits, so if we're passing on inherited food patterns, um, it's better that we pass them on healthy because we can pass on food habits and addictions and cravings and traits in a way that's passing on the more likelihood, and it's not set in stone, nothing is, but the more likelihood of the unborn baby having the same cravings and tendencies towards certain foods. And so it's really important that we consider that, but it is a huge subject that's too big to go into just now, but it's certainly worth mentioning when we talk about maternal nutrition because it's more than just prenatal within that prenatal time and what you should be including in extra nutrients. But it's also important to consider your preferences during pregnancy because I, I I see a lot of oh baby wants cake baby wants ice cream go and get me some cake or some ice cream because baby really wants it baby doesn't baby genuinely doesn't baby will start to pick up on on taste preferences of the mother particularly in the third trimester and that's where babies are particularly susceptible to what mum is eating and that does start to shape their own future taste preferences so baby is not the one that wants cake and ice cream generally it's mum um, but when mum then has them baby is more likely to also want them later on in, in when they are here um, and when you are trying to feed them they are more likely to be predisposed to those tastes because that's what they are sensing and, and being stimulated by in the womb so yes we biologically have our prenatal nutrition considerations but we also food is much more than biology so we also need to consider our food habits and our food cravings and what we might be influencing via our choices there as well so as i said really big subject so back to the more specifics of actually building a brain and the baby brain is, is fascinating in terms of how much development goes on in such a short space of time um, so when a baby is born um, I did mention the 50% of the nutrients going to their brain well that brain becomes quite big um, and when the baby is born its brain is already 25% the size of an adult's brain so that's why babies heads sometimes are quite big <laughs> in relation to the rest of their body when they're quite small and um, because of, you know all that growth and development has gone to their brain so the 25% the size of an adult's brain when they're born by the time they're three brain's already 80% the size of an adult's brain so it's you know it's it's gone huge development and all of that development needs a lot of you know nutrients to help to fuel that pace of rapid development that growth and development that that baby goes through at that time it's such a, a rapid pace of development so of course the brain is growing but what how it grows and I mentioned in um, another video that I did on the neuroscience of nutrition 
I mentioned there about the sort of the pathways that are created and the number of neuron connections that babies have and how much that grows within the early years. A lot of that is, is based on experiences as well as nutrition. But really, the children's brain development depends a lot on what is fed to it at the time. And a big part of that is, of course, experiencing the world around them and their, you know, that how positive is the environment around them and how stress-free is it. But also it's the nutritional elements because the biology is still a really big part. And so the nutritional deficiencies that a child may have will actually have a really big impact on a child's day-to-day -day learning and development. And one of the things that we will look at when we look at specific foods are a food group called phospholipids. And if a child is struggling with a phospholipid deficiency, they will really find it difficult to concentrate and to focus. And when I do family housework, I do always do phospholipid deficiency assessment because it's really quite telling the results of that in terms of making um, explanations for behavior or for not grasping things. And it can come down to something as simple as just being slightly deficient in something. And phospholipids, again, they're not an alien food. They're quite easy to come by, but we'll look at that when we do the specific foods a bit later on. So a deficiency will have a really big impact on a child's development. So zinc is another good example. If a child is deficient in zinc, they will have a really poor memory and it's, it can be quite frustrating if you if you're talking to a child and they just they can't remember things it's like we'll go and get this one what we're gonna get uh, you know it happens to us as grown-ups so we don't tend to expect it too much with children but they will genuinely have um poor memory and even impaired motor skills if they're if they're deficient in things so if you know a child might get called a bit clumsy um or a bit careless with things it could actually be down to a deficiency and the thing with zinc as well is if a child has a zinc deficiency but also in the same sense has a low serotonin level so that could be because they're not getting the right neurotransmitters to create serotonin so they're not getting the right balance of protein if they have low serotonin and a zinc deficiency they may well have increased anxiety depression and even aggression so if we have a child who's being sort of is unexplained and has of outbursts of temper etc it's not that that child's being naughty more often than not it's that there's something biologically going on within the child and to get to the bottom of what's really going on in the child often a good place to start is to look at what nutritional deficiencies may be there so zinc is a really really important nutrient when it comes to identifying patterns of behavior that can be linked back to a nutritional deficiency there's often things that you think ah kind of then starts to make sense so it's really telling what deficiencies show and it shows how important nutrition is when we see the impact a deficiency has because then we know that everything kind of works quite well with a healthy balanced diet but can go really quite you know out of kilter when there's something missing from the diet so how we build a brain so there's two parts to this for me really there's the biological part which is you know, what actual food and what nutrients are. Like we've been talking about phospholipids and our, um, zinc and um, lots of different essential fatty acids and we will cover more of this. But also there's a neuroscience part of this because nutrition and future eating habits and so nutrition in childhood and future eating habits are really closely linked to future health. And so what we're doing in formative nutrition is not just biologically building and shaping and creating somebody but we're building and shaping their future relationship with food and that's really important but a lot of that is covered a lot more detail when I do um, 
the nutritional neuroscience video on the links with this, this, this subject. And that's showing how the food we eat and the way we talk about food, the way we present food, the way if we use it as a punishment or a reward or a treat, um, how that all links to the neuroscience of our food relationship. So there's two sides to building a brain. This is the biological side, and then there's all of those pathway connections that are associated with food. Food is a very big relationship that we have throughout our lives, and it's also it can be a very emotive relationship. Food really can trigger lots of memories and associations, and it can be quite an emotional attachment. And it often, and I see this a lot with the grown-ups I work with, often emotional eating, stress eating, comfort eating adults have had issues that started in childhood and we can come back to a point in childhood and make a connection there. So building a brain when it comes to nutrition is really, really important, but it's twofold in terms of it's not just about what you eat, but it's about how you portray food and how you talk about food and the relationship that child has with food as well. So of course, so we do have the nutritional factors that we do need to consider. Um, and really, as a nutritional therapist, I do find myself saying an awful lot, it's really important that we have a healthy, balanced diet, um, because it really is. So we, as a human race, have survived and evolved and thrived for many a year before the onset of convenience foods, before we had, you know, a multitude of um, supplementation and health food shops with special things and this, that and the other. We managed to survive and we managed to thrive and we managed to evolve and we managed to, you know, get to where we are today. You could say that now we're slightly going the other way when it comes to um, our health because we now have a lot more lifestyle diseases than we ever used to. And so actually maybe we've gone a step too far with our convenience, but that's another subject. Um, so actually what's what I'm coming to with this is a healthy balanced diet is absolutely readily available in nature and we don't need to go out of our way we don't need to spend a fortune and we don't need to make it overly complicated and we don't need to make our life really hard when it comes to our relationship with food because actually nature provided everything that we need whether you're a meat eater or vegetarian or vegan it's possible I personally prefer to you know let a child make their own decision when it comes to vegetarianism or vegan I'm vegetarian but my child loves meat I don't know where he's got it from um, but that's going to be his choice um, I know that he gets certain nutrients from meat that I would then struggle or have to you know make different ways to make sure he gets them um, there are ways and if you do have a vegan child it's going to be more difficult um, to get the full balance of amino acids etc but it is possible everything is available in nature so why we always say a healthy balanced diet is because a cross-section of all of those natural things is really what's needed just to tick all of the boxes so we can completely do without all the processed foods we can um, and we can go back to food as it should be and actually you're much more likely to get all of the nutrients from that food than you are ever gonna get from processed food. So if we take something like, you know, chicken breast with some potatoes and some, you know, vegetables that haven't had huge transportation miles, etc. Plenty of them around, plenty of seasonal things that we can actually have. That's protein, that's carbohydrates, that's vitamins and minerals, that's fats, it's everything that you need and yet it's such a simple meal. And as far as children are concerned, 
just exposing them to different foods and different tastes is really important and it helps with the healthy balanced diet to include children as much as possible with food um, because they don't like being told what to do particularly food is one area where they have control if we think basically children have everything done for them or they're told what to do every step of the way they like to assert some authority and often when authority is displayed in a child it's around the food that they eat and so this is another different subject but when we get fussy eating children and etc often it's about control and it's about ownership and it's, it's something else that's going on but that's a different subject but a healthy balanced diet is really it's really quite easy to achieve but I think often nutrition is is sort of very counter it's, it's sort of contradictory in the media and it's confusing in the media because there's often something that is one day is healthy the next day is not and it can be confusing and you can be almost led to believe that you have to spend a lot of money to be healthy but you have to have this to be healthy and in a nutshell you don't um nuts, seeds, grains, poultry, you know, meat, fish, whatever, um, dairy, all of those things, simple and basic. Um, you can make soups and stews and all sorts of things from that and you are literally cross-section of nutritional content that we need from each food group. So that's, it is possible and it is achievable but I think everyone's made it too complicated and everyone's made nutrition feel like it's something that is, is expensive and it's only for those who can afford it and it isn't and it shouldn't be and we all need to make sure that we're understanding food a little bit more so that we understand these links not just with the biology but with all the emotional sides of food as well so when it comes to the specific vitamins and minerals there's obviously there's lots of them that work together um, but when we look at specifically involved in memory and brain development and things we've got b vitamins normally we talk about b vitamins with energy transfer and metabolic activity and making us get up and go and you know but also that get up and go has to happen up here as well so when we talk about b vitamins and energy there's also the cognitive energy that we need remember our brain is actually very hungry um, and so it needs that energy so B vitamins are involved in memory function, again, um, as so is vitamin C. We normally associate vitamin C with immunity and wound healing, but actually, you know, it's really important for our memory function as well. Vitamin D, um, we have lots of vitamin D deficiency in this country, and we're going into darker, you know, darker days and colder days, we're covering up more so our skin isn't exposed. We have a lot of vitamin D deficiency, we normally associate vitamin D with bone health, of course, and um, rickets, which is making a comeback, um, which we don't want. But also, it's really important for our immune system and our mood. So when we have vitamin D deficiency, it can really affect our mood. And our mood, that's a big subject, but our mood will certainly affect our cognitive clarity and our willingness to learn, our willingness to focus, problem solve, etc. So there's, there's lots of things linked with brain development that is not just to do with actual learning. If we're in a grump or a bad mood, we're not going to want to learn. And that applies to children as well. And magnesium, really important nutrient that's often lacking um, or deficient in children. But that helps us sleep. And without sleep, we don't get all the restorative repair and rest and recovery that we so desperately need, especially when children are going through rapid growth and development, etc., all over their body, not just their brain. But they really need that rest, restorative rest and repair when it comes to sleep. 
So a balanced diet sounds simple and straightforward to say, um, but it can be, and it should be, and it should be available to everybody. Okay, so I said I would go through some specific foods, and I mentioned phospholipid earlier. Now the easiest um, food source to discuss when it comes to phospholipids are certainly eggs, because eggs are one of the most versatile foods that you can have. They're economical, but don't buy the really cheap ones because it's counterproductive. Um, because a, a battery hen is not going to provide a good quality egg in terms of protein or omega 3s. So it's, you know, the cheapest is not always the best. And um, certainly not when it comes to animal produce. And it's not just from a welfare perspective, it's from a nutritional perspective as well. So eggs are really good for phospholipids. Two to three times a week, yolk included, because um, that's where lots of the goodness are. And they're also really good for eye health as well. So it's not just about children, obviously. We like to look after ourselves as well. And as we get older, some of the nutrients in egg yolk are really good for age-related macular degeneration. So looking after our eye health as we age, um, but also helping children's brain development when they're growing. So we also have the um, good sources of DHA and of the which is one of the four essential fatty acids I mentioned earlier, which make up the 40% of the brain. So phospholipids are a good source of that. And this is where I mentioned problem solving earlier. If we're deficient in DHA, one of these essential fatty acids and phospholipid, then we really will struggle with grasping new concept of problem solving. So if you have a child who struggles with that, Maybe you think they're just not interested or, you know, that they're not quite getting it for whatever reason. It could be a deficiency in phospholipids. And omega-3, we all probably have heard of omega-3s quite a lot because they're the ones that tend to get a lot of press in the, in the news. But they're not only involved in, in brain growth and development, but in keeping down inflammation in the body via ecchiosinoids, which are a complicated subject too much to go into here um, but they, they they are part of a process that helps to keep down inflammation in the body and inflammation in the body generally is not a good thing so fish of course we can't talk about essential fatty acids and not bring in fish um, all of the four essential fatty acids will be found in fish um, and in terms of fish you know children can be funny with fish so sometimes you have to be creative with ways to do it and, and certainly fish fingers are not the be all and end all um they're not bad they they will contain this um, but of course there's other things that have been added to them as well if it's the only source of fish that your child will have that's fine let's go with that um but if you can try other ways to have a, a pure source of fish so a, a fillet a piece of salmon um which is flaked up into pasta or a jacket potato with some mashed up avocado for a double whammy of EFAs. You know, if you can find a way of doing it so it's as least processed as possible, then that's the best. Um, but also, if it needs to be a fish finger, then absolutely fine, because I'd rather children were having fish fingers than no fish at all. So a really good source of all of the essential fatty acids would be to, to include fish in the diet two to three times a week, again, if it's something like tuna, which um, is linked with mercury, um, not all types of tuna, but generally the more expensive ones won't be as much, um, but they are really expensive, so not really obtainable for most of us. Um, maybe just once or twice a week, depending on the age of the child, it will get more, they can have it more often, the older they get, but certainly not, for example, tuna every day. And so, as we've said, a, a, a deficiency in phospholipids 
the, 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 the sort of personality traits that would come with that could be thinking that somebody's not really interested, not really concentrating, not showing any attention to detail or just finding it really difficult to grasp things or, or having a very low patience with things and quickly moving on because they didn't get it um, and therefore they've got no, no, no not the content and then they move on. And that goes for grown-ups as well. <laughs> this isn't just to do with children because grown-ups will display the same things if they are deficient too. Um, and then berries. Most children will eat berries in some way, shape or form and they are rich in antioxidants, as are lots of other fruits and vegetables. Um, so of course we should make sure that we eat a rainbow every day and then we're getting a cross-section of nutrients across all the colour groups. Um, but berries are really good source of antioxidants and most children like berries, hence why we can include them here. Um, and they antioxidants then support the brain function as well and that goes for grown-ups too, more in terms of the decline rather than the, the growth. Um, and vitamin C supports memory function but also supports the immune system too. So food and mood, I do talk more about this again in the neuroscience video where there's lots of links of those food associations with our, our sort of emotional state but basically our, our food that we eat creates and changes our mood um, and our body is really good at recognizing what we should feel and when. So it's the, our, our body seems to know when we need to feel alert um, and it will, it will respond by keeping us alert and concentrating or it seems to know when we need to relax and it will help us to wind down. Um, so it helps to create the right mood at the right time and food can either help or hinder this. <laughs> so the right foods will work with the body and create the right mood at the right time. The wrong foods will do the opposite. So what to avoid? With nutrition, I always say we can have a little bit of what we like, but it is how we portray what we like that can have a big issue and a big link with the sort of the neuroscience aspects of our relationship with food. But on a biological level, certain foods will hinder the body's ability to absorb nutrients. So a good example of that is to use trans fats, which are an artificially, man artificially manufactured fat, which is used to preserve the shelf life of a product, which is why it's used in many um, processed foods and too much sugar, of course. So both of those things will actually undo some of the good work that the good food is doing by blocking um, it from doing its work. Things to look out for when it comes to trans fats. It's, it's a vegetable, it's a form of omega-6. So you could think, omega-6, that's an essential fatty acid. We need that. We do, but in a Western diet, we all have far too much omega-6 and our ratio is way too high in favor of omega-6 because of the, the vegetable oil element of it and because vegetable oil is used in, in many processed foods. But the trans fat in particular has been artificially altered. So the vegetable oil has been artificially altered and it's then labeled as you won't probably find it labeled as trans fats because a lot of people realize that they're not good um, but it could be labeled as hydrogenated vegetable oil or partially hydrogenated vegetable oil and you will be unfortunate in most processed foods or, or in fried foods if it's reheated if the oil is reheated repeatedly and they do hinder the body from absorbing EFAs and it, they were described as the most dangerous macro, macronutrient by the British Heart Foundation because it's a kind of false energy because it's artificially manufactured it's harder for the body to metabolize than a natural fat and so it's much more likely to become fat tissue than fat energy as in energy we can use it actually is more likely to sit around the body which is the type of fat we don't want to we don't want the, the 
body fat sitting around. We want it to be used as energy. And sugar, of course, a whole other subject when it comes to sugar. Um, but sugar does light up parts of your brain. Um, we have a pleasure and reward center of our brain and sugar activates a dopamine response in our brain. And so sugar is automatically linked with something pleasurable. Um, and that unfortunately is also because it's the pleasure and reward center of the brain where our addictive tendencies come from. So sugar is addictive and it does do more damage than you think. Um, I still hear lots of times when I do family health, oh, it never did me any harm, or they're young, they run it off. Um, unfortunately, children are not exempt from adult diseases. And so in the last 20 years, we've seen a huge increase, 40% increase in children getting type 2 diabetes. So it does more damage than you think. It does metabolic damage, which is where we get type 2 diabetes. But there's also neurological elements as well. Um, there's new emerging evidence around the, the, how much damage sugar actually does on a neurological level. And there's even a proposed term, type 3 diabetes, which is a link with another form of, of, of Alzheimer's specifically around sugar. And so it does do more damage. There's lots of research out there. We are consuming more sugar than we ever have. Um, and some of the health traits and some of the health factors will only start to emerge as, as we start to see things happening, which is you know generally what happens with health. You start to see things going wrong and you think, what's causing that? And then there's some research and then we link it back to something. And so we're only starting to really see the effect in the last 20 years and how much more sugar we're eating in that time and what actual real damage we're actually doing by the amount of sugar that we're consuming. But it definitely does more damage than you think. And it's definitely not something that children will just burn off, unfortunately. Um, it, it is actually more deep-rooted than that. So giving children a healthy start. If we are responsible for feeding a child, we're not just responsible for making sure that they are full, which is you know, what we, we tend to like to do, make sure that they are full and not hungry. Um, but we also need to make sure that we're giving them the right biology, but we're also giving them the right neuroscience when it comes to food. So we're giving them the right biological start, but we're also giving them the good emotional start with food. So they have a good understanding of food. They have a good relationship with food. They're in control with food. And often when, when children have a lot of high sugar and a lot of high fat foods, they're not really in control because they have the same metabolic cycle that a grown up would have with that food. They, they feel good, then it drops, then they're hungry again and they're irritable and then they really want something else because they never feel full, never feel full of energy. And so it's the same as a grown-up would have with that metabolic cycle of bad food. So when we're responsible for feeding a child, we're not just biologically responsible, but emotionally responsible in giving them the best possible start. And it is like a car and fuel. Yes, food, food is fuel for us, but it's much more than that as well. And so it's a real whistle-stop, as it always is, because nutrition is such a big subject and there's so many different areas it goes off in, even during a, you know, a fairly specific subject like this. I find myself, oh, we could talk about this and this and this. And so there's lots involved. Um, but in terms of you know, what I do, <laughs> I talk about food. And uh, this is, this is uh, my website, thehealthkit.co.uk. And I do lots of articles and videos for cash, um, of which this is one, and providing nutritional content um, books and apps I present on Early Years TV Food which is specifically for nursery settings and 
Childminders and I have a book, How Food Shapes Your Child, which is very much, as you can imagine, on the lines of how food basically shapes a child and builds a child. Um, so that's it from me and I hope it's been useful and a whistle stop tour but lots of information hopefully. I'll see you soon. you at home. Don't forget for more great content tailored towards those working in care, health and education you can join us online at www.cashalumni.org.uk. It's free to join our network and you gain access to some great articles, videos and resources to support your career and some information about career development as well as our members discount and benefits scheme. Until next time, take care and if you'd like to feature on a future episode of podcast please get in touch at alumni at cash.org.uk until next time take care